19. And just while you're doing that, I wanted to highlight um, our book table over here to your left. We have uh, books. We have a library actually there where you can take books out, sign them out. And also uh, we have some books which you can purchase at cost. And the whole object there is to get some good resources in your hands. So if you can't afford to buy something, um, there's loaners there. And one book I want to highlight is this one, Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul. An excellent book just to help you in learning how to study the Word of God. We're going to talk about that this morning. Learning how to study the Word of God. Learning to appreciate the Word. And I think R.C. Sproul does an an excellent job in this in guiding through, um, again, both an appreciation and an ability to interpret and study the Word of God. So I just want to highlight that. So if you want to, there's actually only one copy in the loaner section, so you may need to hurry up after the message to get that. Uh, but it's also worth purchasing one as well for your own library. Well, we are continuing our series looking at pathways of grace, the various means of grace that God has given us to relate to Him, to walk with Him, to obey Him. And we've been spending uh, the past month or so talking about the essential means of grace of the Word of God. And so we've heard about how the Word is necessary for true life. We talked about that from Matthew 4, how we live by His Word. We talked about the importance of reading, the benefit of reading God's Word and memorizing God's Word. And last week we spent time talking about um, the blessing that comes from the preaching of the Word, the hearing of the Word. Well, today I want to talk about the benefit we receive as we study and meditate on the Word. The title of the message today is understanding and enjoying God's Word. So as we get ready to look at Psalm 119 and receive from the Lord this morning, let's pray. Lord, we just come before You and we ask, O God, that You would speak to us. Lord, sometimes when I say that, it just sounds so presumptuous. But Lord, we see in Your Word that You are a God who loves to communicate. You are a speaking God. You've given us Your Word. And You've called us to exercise this gift of preaching and hearing the Word preached. And and so, Lord, we don't come based on our own merits and our own presumption. We come based on Your promises. And we ask You, God, gracious and mighty God, according to Your promises, speak to us. Use a weak, sinful vessel Myself, Lord, to do the miraculous, to highlight Your glory and goodness. We thank You for this privilege, Lord, and we recognize our need for You and depend on You, and we thank You and look forward to what You're going to do. So lead us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Psalm 119, right in the middle of your Bible. You can turn a little to the left or right and find Psalm 119. We're not going to read the entire psalm this morning. A little background, this is a Hebrew poem, as the psalms are. And it's an acrostic poem, and all that means is that every eight verses start, every group of eight start with the same Hebrew letter. And so it runs through the 23 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, combining uh, sin and shin, two two letters, to make 22 groupings of eight. So it's 176 verses long, and it's a wonderful celebration of the Word of God. So let's start in verse 9, and I'll read through verse 32. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. 
My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me. And graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Psalm 119, 9-32. Psalm goes on for 176 verses celebrating and delighting in the Word of God. And And I wanted to spring off of this section of Psalm 119, this wonderful celebration of God's Word, and in particular, the focus in this section on learning God's Word, on asking God to teach us His Word. Did you catch that as we went through that? A number of the verses where the psalmist said, I've stored up Your Word in my heart. I've stored up Your Word that I might not sin against You. Then blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. And there's a number of words used for the Word of God in here. Statutes, precepts, the Word, the Law, the Commandments. It says in 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your Word. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Hide not your commandments from me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Graciously teach me your law, it says in verse 29. And then verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. This psalm is full of longing to understand and know God's Word. To have the truth of God's Word be grasped by the psalmist. And to have that understanding lead to full enjoyment of God's Word. We are called as the people of God to apply ourselves to the study of the Word, to understand the Word for the purpose of understanding and full enjoyment of God's Word. And when I say enjoyment, I I mean that in the full sense of the Word. The blessing that comes as we enjoy the, the life that we receive from God as we encounter Him in His Word and understand His ways, the strength we receive, the ability and power to obey the joy that comes. Those things are, are experienced as we study and give ourselves to the study and the knowledge of God's Word. And that's what we see in Psalm 119. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And as I prepared this message, I thought I could say what I need to say in one message. And I found out I couldn't. I think there's some important topics in this whole aspect of studying God's Word that that I I want you guys, I want us to understand and benefit from. So there are four things we're going to cover in studying and understanding God's Word for the purpose of enjoying Him. One is that Scripture is compelling. They're all C's. Scripture is compelling. In order to come to the Word of God rightly and study it rightly, we must understand that Scripture is compelling. There's something about it that is unusual that should grip our lives and change our view of the Word. So Scripture is compelling. Second, Scripture is clear that as we come to study the Word, we come with the conviction, the understanding from the Word that the Word itself is clear. It's not confusing. It doesn't take an advanced degree to study God's Word. It's clear. Yes, there are aspects that are more complicated, but the majority of the texts are clear and meant to be that way. So Scripture is compelling. Scripture is clear. Scripture is in context. We'll talk about that. As we study the Word, we must understand it's written in a context. And that helps us understand and then take the next step of applying it. 
And then fourthly, Scripture is Christ-centered. So compelling, clear context, and Christ-centered. And next week I will provide an outline for you that you can have and that will kind of list some of these things and the specifics that you can use as a tool, hopefully, to serve you. So first, Scripture is compelling. And that's all we're going to talk about today. When we come to the Word of God, we must come understanding that this is no ordinary book. It is a book. It is a piece of literature. And yes, literary methods for analyzing it can be and are very helpful. But it's not any old book. It's not any old piece of literature. This is the Word of God. There is something unique about it. It is, it is the Word of God. It is the Word of the living, eternal God, the infinite One. And we're going to talk about how we know this to be true. So as we come to it, we must come with this understanding that, there is, that this is a compelling book. It is different, unique. It's, it's set apart from any other book. Yes, it is literature. And again, literary methods can help us, but it's beyond normal literature. This is God's Word here, which should just amaze us. It should just amaze us that, that the living God has given us a book full of His truth and His ways that we can access. And it teaches us and it shows us what sort of God He is. There are those who say God is so transcendent, He's unknowable, but the, the true God is not. He has given us His book. Yes, He is transcendent and He's beyond our full comprehension, but He wants to be known. And so He has said, here, here's a book. Here's a book that is my word, attested that it is my word for you to enjoy. So as we come to it, we must understand that. And we must come with the understanding that this is ultimately the word of God. And I'm going to talk about how we know it is the word of God, but I want to say there's one thing that stands above all other reasons for us to know that it is the word of God, and that is that God himself attests to the fact that this is the word of God. More importantly than anything else, any other reason is that God Himself attests that this is the Word of God. That as we read His Word, He reveals Himself to us. That must be our foundational conviction for how we treat this book. That God Himself has revealed Himself to us. And why I say that is because I think that's what the Scriptures teach. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it talks about the fact that the things of God are not revealed, uh, are not attained by the ways of man, that instead they're revealed by the Spirit. In verses 4 and 5, it says, uh, Paul speaks of him coming to preach the gospel. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our faith must ultimately rest that it is the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that testifies that this is the book. And then later on in that section, in verse 13, it says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's basically two ways to know something. Either you know it through your five senses, or God reveals it to you. And you can choose to rest your confidence on one or the other. And there's nothing wrong with learning things with your five senses. I'm not speaking against that. But our ultimate conviction must be that this is the revealed Word of God because as we read it and encounter it, we encounter the living God. The Spirit Himself testifies to us that this is truth. First John 5 says the same thing. That this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. That's a testimony from the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And he speaks in there as well as not relying on men's testimony. He said, we have a testimony that's greater, the testimony of God. Where is that testimony found? Here. And so our confidence ultimately to know that this is a compelling book comes from the unique experience of the believer reading it and having the Spirit of God say, yes, this is the Word of God. This is true. Christ did die and rise from the dead. And you are mine. That experience, that encounter, that what's called the self-attestation of the Spirit, of the Word of God, must be our ground for confidence that this is a compelling book. Now that we're going to look at other verses and other things that also teach us with that. But I just want to say that up front because I don't want us to kind of base our confidence on some of the things I'm going to talk about. 
some of the data and some of the research and things like that. that. That's helpful. But ultimately, it must be that God Himself has revealed the truth to us by His Spirit in the Word. Now, we can use our five senses. We can apply logic. And since it's truth, it's robust, and it will attest through that as well. But that must be a secondary witness to us. So does that make sense? I, I hope that's clear. I just, as I prepared this, I didn't have this point initially, and I felt like God was saying, I want you to put this point in there. I want you to put up front. So that's why I bring that. Calvin has said, if you could throw that quote up regarding this, John Calvin, the theologian, although sufficiently firm proofs are at hand to establish the credibility of Scripture, we ought to seek our conviction in a higher place than human reasons, judgments, or conjectures. That is, in the secret testimony of the Spirit. That, the, the experience of the Spirit testifying to the validity of the Word is where we must ultimately rest. The Scriptures themselves testify that they are the Word of God. The Word of God breathed of God. That's the word used in a couple places. The Scripture is God breathing. He's speaking. He's inspiring people to write. And in Second Peter, Peter says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And verse in 2 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This book is no ordinary book. These are the breathed out words of the transcendent, eternal, all-wise, all-loving, all-perfect God. This book is compelling. And it should be life-determining for us. It's a compelling book because it is the Word of God. And specifically, when I talk about it being compelling, there are some details to that that I want to get into. There are few things, about four things I want to talk about, how the Word is compelling. First, it means it's inerrant. It's without error. It's reliable. The Word of God is reliable. The Word is authoritative and it is sufficient. It's compelling and what I mean in that is that it is inerrant, without error. It's reliable, it's authoritative, and it's sufficient for all of life in God. The first, that it's inerrant. This flows from the testimony of Scripture. Psalm 18 and Psalm 19 both say, speak of the Word of God. This God, His way is perfect. and The Word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. And then Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So Scripture testifies that the Word itself is flawless and without error. Also, the reality that it's breathed of God teaches us the same. If the perfect one, the all-wise one, the one who controls all things, has breathed this, then it by necessity is without error if it comes from Him. And Augustine said, because they come from the Holy Spirit, the sacred writings cannot contain error. There are no errors here. There are no errors in this book. As originally received, there are no errors in it. And some of you might be thinking, wait a second, I heard about this one from my friend. And my answer to that is, that's, that's great. Uh, and it's good to ask those questions. I don't want to say, you know, tell your friend just flat out, no, wrong. You see, because it is without error, because it is the Word of God, because it is truth, it's robust. And our attitude must never be, we need to somehow defend the Scriptures. Because if we don't, the Scriptures will somehow be proven wrong. Our defense of the Scriptures is for the good of the person we're talking to is really the, the object of it. So if you have questions, or if your friends have questions, that's okay. That's good. And I want you to avoid the error that I have made in the past of thinking, oh no, I discovered an error in the book. The first one to come across this error. And if I tell other people, I'm going to ruin their faith. I, I actually went about a year or two on a theological topic that I thought I had discovered as a young Christian that caused great doubt and concern for me. And I was so concerned about others, not, I, didn't, I didn't share it. I thought I had an original discovery of error in, the, in, the, in, in God and in his, in his ways. Isn't that silly? But we do that. 
we can think, I found a new error. Don't be afraid of those errors because what I have found, as I finally come around to asking others for help, there's nothing new under the sun. That this book has been around for a long time. And you know, matter of fact, most of the errors you hear, if you get on atheist.com or whatever that webpage is and, and look up stuff, you're going to find the same old things that were said 2,000 years ago. And if you read the early church fathers, they dealt with it. They answered it way back then. And they've been answered a long time as well. So there's nothing new under the sun. Don't be afraid to ask questions. There are great resources out there. And I would be glad to, however I can, help you as you wrestle through those things. See, it's truth. Breathe of God. We, we need not fear those sort of discussions. And, and, and I have a confidence. I may not understand how those answers are reconciled, but there are good answers, and I'm not fearful to go after that. This word is reliable. It's true. It's without error. Let me give you some information. Some of you may have seen some of these things before, but I just want to, I want to help you understand what's unique about this Bible, why it is so reliable, why it is inerrant. And I want to do that because I, I don't want to fill your head with information. This isn't an academic exercise. My desire here is to increase your confidence in this book. So as you go to study it, there's expectation, there's delight, there's enjoyment, there's awe, there's worship that goes on. So let's take a look. John, if you could put up that, that graph, the chart. Our Bible is unique among ancient literature. It stands out as an incredibly unique book. Written about 2,000 years ago, over a span of about 1,500 years, what we have right before us, we can be assured, is a very excellent representation, very accurate translation, very accurate containment of the original manuscripts. We, we affirm that those original manuscripts are the ones inspired of God. They're the ones without fault. And they've been copied through the ages. And we have this one in English. The, by the way, the original Bible was not in English. It was in, people didn't speak English back then. Um, it was in a different language. But we have wonderful uh, copies and great confidence to be sure that this is the Word of God, this Bible you have in your hand. So take a look at this chart with me. On your, the left-hand side are... Going down in that column are a number of ancient works. Homer, the Iliad, Caesar, the Gallic Wars, Plato, the Tetralogies, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Aristotle, Herodotus, Euripides, and then the New Testament. These are all very well-respected ancient documents, and, and there's really not much argument about their validity. So that's the left column. The next column over says when written. You see that? And Homer, written 900 B.C., Caesar, 100 B.C. or so, Plato, 427, 384, 480, 480 for Euripides. In the New Testament, 50 to 90 A.D. Then the next column, you see that one, earliest copy? These are the earliest copy that we have, the oldest copy we have of those different documents. So you can see the different ones. Note the bottom, New Testament, the earliest copy is 130 A.D. So the next column over says the time span. That's the time span between when it was originally written and the oldest copy that we have. All right, so look at Homer in the Iliad. 500-year gap between the original and the oldest copy, yet no one really disputes that, that we have what Homer wrote. Next, 1,000 years for the Gallic Wars, 1,200 for Plato, 1,400 for Aristotle, 1,300 for Herodotus, 1,500 for Euripides, and 30 years for the New Testament. So the, the copies that we have were written down by people who probably heard the apostles speak and may even have made their copies from the original autoscript, I think is the word, the original manual, the original text. That's amazing. So 30 years later, that, we have copies of that. Not only that, though, you go to the final column and it shows the number of copies, the number of these ancient copies that we have. 643 of Homer. 10 of Caesar, 7 Plato, 49 for Aristotle, 8 for Herodotus, 9 for Euripides, and 24,000 New Testament copies, ancient copies of the New Testament. 24,000 of them. So we have access to all these copies, and we can compare those to this. 
And we can look and we can see that what we have has been incredibly well preserved. This is, I believe, an act of the sovereign God to make sure that his word is preserved for us today, here at King of Grace. It's amazing. God is good to us. We have this incredible Bible to enjoy. Um, Matthew Slick comments on this. says, The New Testament was written in Greek. We have more than 5,000 different Greek manuscripts from which to compare. There are 19,000 manuscripts of ancient origin in Latin and other languages. And finally, also, the New Testament, all except for 11 verses, can be reconstructed from quotes from the early fathers. So these guys wrote letters back and forth and quoted the Bible. And even if we didn't have the 24,000 versions, ancient versions, we could look at these letters and reconstruct the Bible of that day from their quotes. That's amazing that we have that. There's really no other literature like it. So we have great reason for confidence in this. So we hold that the original manuscripts are inspired of God and we have accurate copies through the ages. I want to touch on something that, that you may hear brought up at times, and that is, well, didn't the copyists make errors as time went on? I mean, they're human, right? So, yeah, I get the thing, inspired of God, can, the original author, the apostle or whomever, writing that, you know, that's inspired of God. I get that. But what about Sam the monk who's sitting there making copies over here of the manuscript? I mean, are you telling me he's inspired in his copying? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you that Sam the monk did make mistakes. And the thing that's amazing, though, is that we have 24,000 copies. And there's a whole area of study called textual criticism. Really smart people who know those languages have looked at those copies and been able to, through looking at all the copies and some of the discrepancies that came in. Now, those discrepancies came, usually, usually people who, who made copies were were spiritual, were religious people, godly people, God-fearers at least. And so when they made their errors, they made them for a couple of reasons. They either misspelled, did a typo, basically, as they copied, or sometimes they inserted or took away something they thought would help the text. So they may, may have thought something was redundant. Maybe they thought, well, someone else before me, Bert the monk, must have messed this one up, so Sam the monk thinks he's going to fix it and drops it out or adds something. And what happens is that those errors can get propagated. So if you could put up the next slide. No, the one that shows all the the tree of books. There we go. Here's just an explanation of what we're able to do. If you can see, I'll explain it for you. The, The very top of that tree, the very top of the slide, that's the original manuscript, the one without error. Okay. And then in the like the second century, people make copies of it. And it still represents the original manuscript well. Then in the third century, Sam the monk comes along and all the other guys do it well, but over here he decides to take out the only Son of God. This is just a made-up example. It's, it's like one in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, but, but he takes out the only Son of God for some reason because he thinks, well, certainly the Son of God. You know, who needs to say only? That must have been Bert who put that in there. He takes it out. And now there is a tree, a branch that flo- flows from Sam that omits the only Son of God. But the thing is, we've got 24,000. There's all these other copies, and and not only the ones from from Rex the monk, who did it right, but also also the the very old ones that come from the followers of maybe the first generation uh, after the apostles or so. So so we can compare all these. So we look at here, uh, say the 5th century documents we look at, or the 4th century, and we'll see all these other copies that say only. And then there's some that don't say only. And, and through the work of textual criticism, we can deduce that, you know what? Somebody made a mistake. And then we say, well, when we are going to translate it into English, we're going to say the only Son of God, because we know that that's what's happened by looking at the data. So our Bibles, we, our English Bibles have the benefit of all this work and all these manuscripts done to make sure that this is what the original said. 99.99% sure that this is what the original said. And the thing is to, to note too, just in case you're wondering, even if we left all those errors in, pretty much no essential doctrine is affected. It's only minor things. 
There's no essential doctrine that's affected. So even in the, the copying, God has protected us. But certainly in the fact that we have 24,000 of them, God has seen to it. And as an advocate for the ESV, I just want to say some people say the King James Version is, is the only one to use, and I think that's great if you like the King James. It's a good version. But the ESV and some of the modern versions have the benefit of some of the manuscripts we've discovered since that time. So we can have an even clearer picture of what the original said. So that's why we don't use the King James. Some people wonder, why don't you use that? They feel it's the best. But I, I just would say, that's a great one. Use it. But uh, we, we think we have one that's a little bit better. Not much difference, though. So just so in case you're wondering about that, you'll occasionally encounter people who, who have that sentiment. And it's because of this. We want the benefit of knowing this is closest to the original. So we are blessed to have this preserved for us. It's not just the New Testament. A little bit of an example for the Old Testament as well is that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered recently. You guys know that story? A farm boy is out and he threw a rock and it went into a cave and he heard a smash and he went in and they found these vessels with Scripture in it. It turned out to be these ancient Old Testament documents, Isaiah in particular. And up to that time, the, Hebrew, the oldest Hebrew manuscript we had was from 916 A.D., a Masoretic text. And so it was interesting as they, as they're still analyzing the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, but as they analyzed the Dead Sea Scrolls, this, this scroll was from a thousand years earlier. And when they went through it, they found that 95% of it was textually identical. And there were some differences, but they were, again, were just some spelling differences and so forth. So again, with the Old Testament, we have this picture of the Word of God being preserved for us. At this point, I'm remembering a Far Side cartoon where there's a student with his hand raised and under it says, Teacher, can I be excused? My brain is full. And I, I, I hope that I'm not filling your brain up. Again, the point here is to help you be confident of the Word of God and, and for the purpose of study and enjoyment. The Word of God is historically reliable too. It's really interesting if you want this. You could spend hours and hours reading about the different things over the time. People have said some of these stories are not accurate. They're, for instance, there was a healing at the pool of Bethesda that Jesus did in John 5. And they, for years they said, there's no such thing. We don't find any, any evidence of this pool. And, and so scholars said, no, it didn't happen. Well, then in 1888 they dug up the pool and found out it was just as described. And, and that the scriptures were right. There's other examples of that. The, the Hittites, for years, they thought the Hittites were a fictional people. Six, mentioned 60 times in your Bible. They thought it was a fictional people. You know, the, the authors made it up for whatever reason, or I don't know what the understanding was. They, they doubted it was real. But in, again, in the 1800s, through some uh, archaeological diggings, and then in 1906, they came across this place, I think in Syria, with 10,000 clay tablets that made numerous references to the Hittites. So finally realized, wow, it's true. So your Bible is historically reliable. And there's probably 20 other stories like that where people have said, no, that, that, that never happened. I, I was, it was interesting. If you read most history books and they talk about the Hebrews and stuff, I think you'll be able to recognize that they're getting all their source on the history of the Hebrew people pretty much from here uh, because this is a reliable historical document. So I hope you're convinced. It's inerrant. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's the Word of God. And it's also to be authoritative for our lives. The Scriptures are to be authoritative for our lives. They, they are meant to determine for us what is true, how we are to live. And that is the way they put themselves. As Jesus speaks in John 17, 17, it says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. The Word of God is the truth. It's, it's to have authority in our lives. And in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua is told that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Jesus taught in John 8, it's those who abide in His Word who are truly His disciples. John 15, those who are in the Father's love are those who abide in the Word. Luke 6, we are to build our house on the Word, the rock of the Word of God. Later on in 6, it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The Word of God as the inspired truth from God is authoritative. It tells us what is true. 
Isaiah 40 has a wonderful verse. It says, A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. This is an authoritative, true Word. The Word of God. Ideas come and go. Kingdoms are raised up and kingdoms fall. This has been the way for millennia. The Babylonian kingdom, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greece, the Greek kingdom, the Aztecs have all risen and fallen as this Word has endured. Ideas will come. Philosophies will come and go. But the Word of God will remain and stand forever. This book is compelling. It lasts forever. Everything promised in it will be fulfilled. Everything in it is true. There is no book like this book. It's authoritative for our lives. It is to teach us truth as ideas come and go. And there's, again, no new ideas under the sun. They're just recycled. It's interesting if you study the Epicureans, you notice that they basically have the same philosophy as modern-day materialists. As you study the ancient Stoics, they basically have the same philosophy of Nietzsche. Stuff comes and goes, but the Word of God stands forever as truth. So it is authoritative. It's inerrant and reliable. It's sufficient as well for us. It's sufficient for us in all matters pertaining to our relationship with God and others. It has all that we need to know how to know and love God and love others. It's sufficient for life. Now, sometimes when you say that, people say, yeah, well, where does it tell me how to change the oil in my car? I don't see that in the Bible. And I concede it doesn't tell you how to change the oil in your car. But it makes a big difference in how you change the oil in your car. It makes the difference between experiencing true life and relationship with God doing your oil for the glory of God because you love God and you love others. Changing your oil is just changing your oil if you don't use the book. But this has what you need for life and godliness. So your experience of changing the oil is radically altered through the truth in this book. So yes, indeed, it does have all you need for life and godliness. No, it doesn't tell you whether you should use 5W30 or 20W50, but it affects how you experience all those things. Everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to relate to God and to relate to others. Second Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, partially, equipped somewhat for every good work. Does it say that? No so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Fully equipped, fully confident for every good work that the man of God is called to. As he teaches and he leads the people in the truth, as he serves others with the knowledge of the Gospel and how to relate to God and how to relate to others, it has everything we need for every good work, for relating God. It is sufficient for us. It's flawless. It's competent. It's able to counsel us to guide us. David Paulson says, the Word of God is living and alive. It strikes home, convicting you of sin and convincing you of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This Word effectively elicits your love, powerfully renews your mind, wisely guides, guards, and shepherds your walk. The Word does all these things. It's fully confident. The promise in Second Peter, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's given us what we need for life and godliness through the Word. I say that in the context that there is a constant drift in all of our lives away from the Word. 
If we're left to ourselves, we drift away from the Word. And we will look for something else to be our sufficiency, to be our authority, to be our reliable God. Now, I'm not saying that any other presentation of ideas besides the Bible is wrong. I'm not saying be ignorant, don't read the newspaper, don't read any books on business, or don't read any books written by people on spiritual things. I'm not saying that. Because there is wisdom there. And any wisdom that they have ultimately is derived from the wisdom of God and ultimately will be derived from here or refer to something in here. So there's much wisdom to be gained. We're called to be those who seek counsel, those who seek wisdom in the the company of many counselors. But there's this constant drift to go away from the Word, to rely on something else to teach us of the fundamental issues, to go somewhere else to treat our soul. The Bible is the ultimate authority on our soul, on the issues that have to do with relating to God and relating to others. There's there's really nothing else. If you want to talk about what is the essence of life, what is life really about, is it not about knowing God, loving God, loving others? And the Bible speaks clearly on that. And if we want to know what life is about, if we want to be counseled, let us go to the book. Let us go to this truth here. It is more competent than any other reference, any other book to counsel you. Yet there's this constant drift. And I I admit that I'm one who likes new ideas. I like theories. I like things that come along. I like to investigate. I like to explore. And I think that's okay. I'm I'm not saying we should, you know, be Bible ignoramuses. We we don't know anything else. We don't don't probe anything else. We can learn. I like to do that, but, but I know I can do that to a fault. Where I will be attracted to a theory. That's not really a biblical theory. An idea that's not a biblical idea. Those things are going to come and go. The Word will stand forever. You guys have seen this, right? In the field of psychology, there's all sorts of ideas that have come and gone. Psychology comes from the word soul. Psych in that is about soul and the study of the soul. And there's a lot of good things that can be derived from psychology. A lot of things we can learn that will affirm truth and nuance things for us. But there's also a lot of crazy ideas that come and go. You guys remember Rorschach tests or ink block tests? Where they make a mess of ink and they open it up and what do you see here? You know that in, in the field of psychology, that's like considered ridiculous now? That they've shown that the, the stuff you see and what it says about you does not correlate to what's going on. It's better just to ask someone directly, how you doing? How you struggling? How's life? What was it like growing up? I mean, just ask them directly without showing them ink blot tests. How about uh, the whole idea of self-esteem training? And I know I'm touching on some dangerous ground with this one. This, our school systems are built on this assumption. Do you know that that's passe? It's, it's no longer considered really what helps people become productive adults. It used to be that you know, self-esteem is the fundamental issue. If you give someone self-esteem, they'll be good. And I'm not trying to say there isn't something there of truth. That's not my point. But as kind of the, the foundation for healthy souls, it's, it's passe. It's, Recognize it does not make better citizens, better people. The whole idea of codependency, another one that they've found out is not a best way to understand behaviors and people. And this is, by the way, I'm taking all this from Psychology Today, an article from Psychology Today you can access. How about uh, playing Mozart for babies, that whole thing? Play the music for babies, it makes smarter babies. That's been proven not to, not to work. Uh, nothing wrong with playing Mozart, and maybe it will help your baby, but there's no correlation that if you play Mozart for your baby and, and whatever, your baby's going to be smarter. There's no, there's no proof of that. But it's an idea that came along. It's a big fad. All these things have been very popular fads. How about, there's some others that are ridiculous. Well, at least they seem to us at this point. Maybe they didn't to the people. Rebirthing therapy. You know about that? Re-experiencing your birth over again. Somehow, and you act and play it out. I don't know all the details. I don't want to know all the details. <laughs> but, but somehow you, re, you re-experience your birth to get, to get past that trauma. You had trauma as an infant at that point, and it's affected who you are. You're, you're not a fully realized woman or man because your birth was traumatic, and so you need to go back and rebirth. And that's been right, gladly shown as ridiculous. Catharsis therapy. You ever heard about that one? You, you just need to go somewhere and with someone and just scream and shout and get angry about something. And if you get angry and yell, it'll be therapy for your soul and you'll come out of there and feel better. And I mean, I, sometimes I do feel better after I yell and stuff, but 
but I don't, I don't know long term if it helps me, makes my voice hoarse and, and stuff. But, so that's another one. One I want to talk about too, I have an example to put up, well actually I don't, it's recovered memories. Remember that one? Really popular in the 80s? Sadly, it, it, was, it was dangerous and it did some damage. In this article from Psychology Today, and you can access this online, it says, while under treatment for depression in the mid-1980s, Patricia Burgess made a horrible discovery. Her psychiatrist, employing both hypnosis and medication, helped Burgess remember that she had been a victim of horrendous abuse as a child. It's a terrible story. Torture, cannibalism, even participation in ritual murders. She also learned that she had more than 300 alternate personalities. Burgess was hospitalized for more than two years, often in leather restraints. Eventually, she began to doubt the validity of her many recovered memories. She sued her therapist, his associate, and the hospital where they practiced, and ultimately won a settlement of $10.6 million. Burgess was one of many swept up in the recovery, me recovered memory craze of the 1980s. Zealous therapists encouraged clients to recall, recall repressed memories of childhood abuse, leading to more than 800 lawsuits against alleged abusers between 85 and 2000. Many resulted in, incarcer in incarcerations. A few led to suicides. We've got to be careful with the ideas. I'm not saying we ignore it, we don't learn anything from it, but let us not ground ourselves in these ideas. Let us go to what God's given us, the best diagnosis of our soul, the best remedy for our soul, the best help we can offer one another. If someone comes to you for counsel, go to the Word. We want to be a community. We want to be a church that's rich in the Word. And when there's struggles going on, we go to one another and we counsel one another and we don't just say the latest ideas. We don't communicate the great article we read from Irma Bombeck. But instead, we go to the Word and we share the Word. We share particularly the Gospel, the good news. That is the cure for our souls. He has given us His Word. This Word is sufficient. It's reliable. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It is the Word of God. Breathe of God. It's a remarkable book. And I hope this morning, through this discussion, I've whet your appetite as the band comes up and we close. I hope I've whet your appetite for this book. And as we spend time next week talking about it, I, I hope this has been a good preparation. That your appetite, your hunger, your respect, your regard for the Word will be sufficiently high that you will eagerly pursue the knowledge of the Word. Next week we'll talk about how it's clear, it's in context, and it's Christ-centered. But as we close, I just want to reread a portion of Psalm 119. Why don't we stand? I have stored up Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against You. Blessed are You, O Lord. Teach Me Your statutes. I will meditate on Your precepts and fix my eyes on Your ways. I will delight in Your statutes. I will not forget Your Word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of Your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not Your commandments from me. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. Put false ways far from me. And graciously teach me your law. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Oh God, we thank you for your word. And God, I ask that You would grant us as a church a very high view of Your Word, O oh God. Not, not O oh God, for the purpose of pride. Not, O oh God, for the purpose of academics. Not, O oh God, for vain pursuits, O oh God. But that we might pursue and know You. That we might love You. That we might worship You. 
that we might reflect Your goodness and Your glory. That we might love others. That we might counsel one another sufficiently. That we might behold Your glory. Thank You for Your Word. Lead us in the study of it for the purpose of understanding and enjoyment, we pray. In Jesus' name. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you, to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory, pour out your power and love as we sing holy, 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 see you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory, pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. So open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart, I want to see Lord bless you this week as you go from this place. May you long for His Word. May you delight in His Word. May you pursue the understanding of His Word that you might see Him, you might know Him, you might love Him, you might enjoy Him. Lord bless you. Have a great week. You're dismissed.